Hello, Dog Days listeners. It's Thursday, August 26th, 2021, the 26th day of the Dog Days of Podcasting. I'm a little unprepared for today after having a couple of really long days on Tuesday and Wednesday. In fact, the only reason the last two were done is because I recorded both of them on Monday and scheduled them. So I'm just going to use today to to go over a couple of semi-random things. First, Mark, uh, Mark the Encaffeinated One, in his series of episodes in this challenge, lately has been talking about everyone else's topics. And today he talked a little bit, a little bit about isotopes and in a rather witting way tried to relate them to the art of writing. He is into storytelling and writing. And I thought it was done pretty well. I was thinking that if we had someone who really understood isotopes and really understood writing, which doesn't really describe either one of us, obviously. I'm the isotope guy and you're the writing guy. Uh, If someone really knew how to do both well, they could probably really take off with your idea and, and metaphor isotopes and writing really well. By the way, there have been chemists and, of course, other scientists who have taken to writing fiction. One famous chemist is Carl Gerasi of Stanford. He's dead now. He died in 2015. He used to write uh, fiction stories. And, by the way, he's the one who helped develop the oral contraceptive pill in the 60s. If I had to try this exercise, being not knowledgeable in the art of writing at all, I think maybe I would go simple and just treat isotopes as characters, broken up up into various families. Each isotope has their own individual personality, some big, some small, some famous, some less so, some predictable, some less so, some considered good, some evil, and so on. There's the hydrogen family, dominated by hydrogen 1, but... H2, deuterium, playing an important role, and H3, tritium, being the unstable member of the family. Some of these families have just one member, like the fluorine family, a single element living in their apartment all alone. Some have many big families. Some of these folks are immortal, they're stable, many are not, Uh, and among those, some live, live nearly forever. And some live and die in a blink of an eye, with the rest in between. Each family and isotope have their societal roles, some considered more important than others, and that can vary over the years and the centuries. Some families or isotopes were unknown until very recently. Others have existed since long ago. I guess, too, each element could be considered a single person, or a single entity, but the isotopes describe different personalities for that person. You could do with that what you wanted. Also, Mark just threw out the word anti-atom, I think, right on the spot, and then he said, I, I don't even know ex- they exist. Yes, they do exist, anti-atoms. The, the only one I know of that's ever been made is for the very simplest atom, hydrogen-1, the simplest isotope of the simplest atom. Regular hydrogen-1 is nothing more than a proton nucleus with an electron outside it. Anti-hydrogen has been made from an anti-proton, which I don't know how they make anti-protons. I didn't have time to look. And an anti-electron. We've 
which we've already been introduced to. Those are positrons. Uh, the following was written in 2009. Angels and Demons, which was written in 2000, was Dan Brown's first thriller to feature Robert Langdon, a Harvard University professor enmeshed in a conspiracy to destroy Vatican City with antimatter stole from CERN. So yes, I have read that book. I've read all the Dan Brown books. I'm a huge fan, it turns out. CERN is the place in Geneva, Switzerland that has a gigantic accelerator that accelerates particles to gigantic speeds near the speed of light and smashes them together. To continue the article, according to Joel, Joel Fadgens, who at least in 2009 was a physicist at UC Berkeley, the amount of antimatter that the book's villains steal from CERN would be more than sufficient to destroy Vatican City and a portion of Rome. Antimatter is the ultimate explosive, annihilate, annihilating completely when it comes into contact with ordinary matter to produce pure energy. No one yet has succeeded in trapping any anti-atoms. Two groups of physicists use the anti-proton decelerator at CERN to slow down anti-protons enough to be trapped and combine with positrons, the antiparticle of the electron, to form anti-hydrogen. Kind of sounds like those two sentences contradict each other. The goal is to probe anti-hydrogen's anti-hydrogen in search of differences between it and normal hydrogen. Any differences, other than these charges, would overthrow today's standard model of particles. Hey, I taught you that in episode two. And their interactions. It might explain why antimatter, created in equal amounts during the universe's birth, is largely absent today. The first antiproton ever was seen, ever seen was created in the Bevatron Accelerator at the Lawrence Radiation Lab in 1955 and earned UC Berkeley scientists Emilio Segre and Owen Chamberlain the 1959 Nobel Prize in Physics. I then noticed a 2010 article just a year later that stated that 38 anti-hydrogen atoms had been trapped at CERN. It's really difficult to trap them for technical reasons. Anyway, I, I, I would have liked to spend a lot more time reading about antihydrogen. I could go on more, but I'll stop there. But anyway, thanks, Mark, for those two uh, interesting ideas that, that got me thinking today. Also, a follow-up to yesterday, uh, talking about atomic bombs. I started by saying uranium-235, which made our original atomic bombs, undergoes a fission reaction into cesium-137, strontium-90, and neutrons. I focused, on the fact, I focused on the fact that multiple neutrons were produced so they could go on to hit other U-235 atoms and create a chain reaction. In fact, many isotopes are produced that are radioactive from the decay of U-235 in a fission reaction. What you actually get is called a decay chain. I didn't want to get bogged down in that part. Yes, strontium-90 and cesium-137 are produced, along with iodine-131. Uh, they are mentioned a lot, these three, because they are produced in decent amounts when uranium 231 undergoes fission. They're also very dangerous. Strontium-90 and cesium-137 can end up in your bones and teeth. Iodine-131 in your thyroid. These are all radioactive and dangerous isotopes that come out of an atomic bomb. In truth, the fission process is a real mess, and what we get is a decay chain of isotopes. 
these decay chains, there's various ones, are, are studied in detail. Following is just one decay uh, for uranium-235. Uranium-235 can decay into thorium-231 and helium-4. Helium-4, by the way, is an alpha particle. But when uranium decays into thorium-231 and helium-4, these are two daughter isotopes, but that's not the end because thorium-231 itself can decay and you end up with this chain. So here is a chain that you can get when uranium-235 decays in a uh, chain reaction. Uranium-235 decays into thorium-231, which decays into protactinium-231, which decays into actinium-227, which decays into thorium-227, which decays into radium-223, which decays into radon-219, which decays into polonium-215, which decays into lead to 11, which decays into bismuth to 11, which decays into thallium 207, which decays into lead 207, which is stable. Every one of those isotopes before lead 207 are unstable. They're radioactive, and they can even have other chain reactions from them. The original U-235 doesn't just decay by just this one chain reaction. There are other ones that can happen at the same time. So it can be a real mess to figure out in the end kind of how many of each of these particles you might get. Because remember, some of these isotopes have long half-lives and some have really short ones. So that's the real, uh, the real dirt on what happens when uranium-235 uh, undergoes fission. A, a few final interesting facts I found. According to what I read, I almost can't believe this is true, but only 1.38% of the uranium in the Little Boy bomb, the bomb is called Little Boy, that destroyed Hiroshima underwent fission. The bomb contained about 140 pounds or 64 kilograms of uranium total. If this is true, that only 1.3% actually underwent fission, that means about two pounds or one kilogram of U-235 decayed in that huge blast. That blast detonated, uh, the bomb detonated 1,670 feet or 509 meters above Hiroshima and left only a few, left only the frames of a few reinforced concrete buildings standing in the mile radius around ground zero. Firestorms destroyed everything within a 4.4-mile radius, 7 kilometers, of the blast. Two pounds? Did all that? Seems unbelievable. Yellow, another fact, <clears throat> yellow cake is solid uranium oxide. You may have heard the term yellow cake before. This is the form in which the... <clears throat> sorry, I almost made it. This is the form in which uranium is commonly sold before it's enriched. And finally, as my voice is going... Sorry, this is a long episode. Uh, uranium is mined in 20 countries, with over half coming from Canada, Kazakhstan, Australia, Niger, Russia, and Namib Namib <laughs> Namibia. Okay, let's finish it here. Talk to you tomorrow.